You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, and author of a new book called Auction Ready, How to Buy Property at Auction Even Though You're Scared Shitless. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, and together we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp and we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. In this episode, we're answering some of your questions. And can you believe it? We're nearly at 130 episodes and we've only managed to do three Q&A episodes. This is our third one. So we want to encourage you to send more questions through. In this episode, we're going to be covering what will happen to your property if the bank your mortgage is with goes bust. Also, alternative forms of property investment a first-time investor has been thinking about and whether we'd recommend them or not. Uh, Capital gains tax exemptions and my favourite tax to hate, land tax, and fixed rates versus variable in the current climate and when to forego an offset account. Thank you so much for sending in your questions and feedback. We'll tackle more of your questions in future episodes. We'll also look for guests who can share specific knowledge when we have more complex problems thrown at us. Keep them coming. And remember to stick around for this week's Property Dumbo as we have a doozy for you. So let's kick off with a question from Steve, and it's a big one. He says, your episode on the topic of build to rent becoming a trend has definitely opened up some further nighttime reading on the topic for him, obviously. I was curious if you and Chris were planning to do a topic on the real estate investment choices options that are out there in the market. For example, student accommodation investment, high yield, low capital growth, holiday pool investments. Uh, He's got okay yields, more lifestyle choice, standard unit and home dwellings, perhaps even commercial real estate. As a relatively young first-time investor, having more information regarding the different choices and options in the real estate market would be good knowledge to have. So it's quite a big question, this one. Uh, And we could probably tackle each one of these on their own merits. What do you think there, Chris? Um, I mean, it comes down to your goals, right? He's mentioned here... Um, he's a relatively young first-time investor. So, you know, I reckon he's in his 20s maybe or uh, oh, 30s. He's, but... put a, he's put apostrophe around relatively, so maybe he's in his 30s. <laughs> maybe 30s, yeah. There you go. That's true. Um, but, I mean, so you got to think, well, what, would the, you know, what are your goals at that age and where in you know, that stage of life and where you're going? I mean, if the question was coming from someone who was, say, nearing retirement or in retirement or in later stages of retirement, Um, you know, if they're very wealthy versus um, they've got no other assets as well. Like so someone's personal situation will will determine a lot of the time what's the best option for them to consider. And I guess that's the key here is to figure out what what are you actually trying to achieve. And I think um, when you're younger, you're really trying to build your assets because you haven't got any. And so you've got to always be looking at ways to grow your asset base rather than potentially get a little bit more income, which you can, you know, still receive by working. So what you said there, Chris, is fundamental for any investor and that is working out 
A, what their goals are and B, where they're at in their investment journey. And obviously, if you're at the beginning of your investment journey, you really do need to actually grow your asset base. And in order to do that, you need capital growth, right? Um, Which is in line, obviously, with what we bang on about all the time, being that property as an investment vehicle is so risky because you're putting all your eggs in one basket, you're borrowing a lot of money, um, it's expensive, expensive to get in and get out of, plus it ties all your assets up, uh, sorry, all your um, capital up. So therefore, you've got to make really good decisions because you, you you can't afford to fail, particularly with your first one. And so therefore, the capital growth story is always there for us in that anything else is too risky. So when he lists out things, investment, he, he's come up with some examples. Um, some of the examples he's come up with, they, they fly in the face of one of the principles, which is in order to get good capital growth over time, you've got to have a property that has owner-occupier appeal or, at, at, you know, and in, within owner-occupier appeal, we're looking at multiple buyer appeal. So we'd love an owner-occupier appeal being oh, a downsizer could like it or a first-home buyer or a pe- potentially an investor as well. Um, if you've got three different groups of, of potential buyers down the track that will be interested in that property, it's more likely to grow in value at a greater rate than one that's only uh, going to appeal to investors, Right. So when you look at some of those ones that he's listed out, you've got student accommodation investment. Well, that is never going to appeal to an owner-occupier and it's only ever going to appeal to investors and probably a very small pool of investors at that. So I would say, you know, the high yield, low capital growth, he's, he's actually listed that in his question. That is definitely not something you look at as someone starting off your investment journey. Would you agree, Chris? A hundred percent. You know, this is kind of a... Uh, you know, the Warren Buffett quote saying you can see who's kind of swimming naked when the tide goes out. I mean, this is what's happening right now with student accommodation, right? So, mm. um, yeah, high yield if you can get it, if you can rent it. I mean, vacancy rates in the city now, whatever they are, you know, potentially 10% in the yeah. Sydney CBD. So, you know, high yield um, if you can get it, but, you know, there's risks involved with that, which is kind of getting seen now. And low capital growth, without a doubt, I mean, the, the amount of demand that, um, you know, that wants that type of property, what pushes the property up, it's investors. And investors are kind of switch the tap on and off. And if it becomes too expensive, then they don't buy it. So you've always got this um, kind of downward pressure on prices and you can always build more. I mean, they can always knock down a building and build more boarding houses and more student accommodation. So there's no real um, cap on supply at all. So uh, personally, I don't think they're great investments at all really. And why yields, some people always kind of get confused with yield and they go, oh, you know, what's the rent and is it a good yield, et cetera. But unfortunately, when you're young, um, you know, you have to pay tax on the yield. So it's all income. So even if you do get a better rent, um, depending on how much you're earning, you're going to lose, you know, 40 or potentially up to 50% of that extra rent in tax. So yield's not a great thing to get when you're uh, younger and you're, you're working, you're paying tax because you lose 40 or 50% of it anyway. So what you really want is kind of capital growth where you don't pay tax on it until you sell. And even then you get a concession. So what's interesting though is this question was actually written before coronavirus. We have been storing up some of these questions. Um, But what the the recent changes have 
really put the spotlight on is the volatility of certain sectors of the market where they do rely on only one type of tenant or one type of future buyer. And I think this is a classic where student accommodation really does rely on the overseas students uh, predominantly. And, and it's shown the, the vulnerability and the weakness of really, it's a bit like Airbnb, you know, for, for people that have bought apartments and decided that that's going to be the, the type of apartment they want is one to appeal to an Airbnb uh, market. Well, you know, they're really hurting now because they've bought a, pro- a property that may not appeal to the general um, renter market in the same way, you know. So it's it's a very, very limited uh, way of approaching property investment. The holiday pool investments, that I, I don't, I couldn't for a minute think of a good example of why anyone should buy one of those. Um, you know, I, I've heard horror stories of people buying into these buildings where they've got like a managed, the building's managed, um, you know, it's like a service apartments, if you like, in places yeah. like the Gold Coast, buildings managed. There's no real control over whether your apartment gets rented out more often than anybody else's apartment, um, you know, so then the pressure's on to keep your furnishings up to date, you know, the renovation, et cetera, et cetera. There's all these other pressures that come with having your apartment in that type of building. But also, you know, if it's in an area where owner, once again, it's that owner occupier thing. This is purely holidays. There's a lot of wear and tear on these properties. What if you decide you don't want to go there anymore yourself? Like as a lifestyle choice, it's extraordinarily limiting. Um, and I think particularly as a young person, you know, why would you limit yourself even to, to lock yourself into going to one place for your holidays every year? So there's lots yeah, of reasons um, why that's limited. Yeah, I mean, I've seen some poor, uh, really poor outcomes with sort of the uh, serviced apartment world where, you know, clients have held them for 15 years and had negative growth and made very little rental income from them as well because um, of all the service fees and, and things like that. So, um, I mean, even if, it's, even if it's just a holiday investment, you know, more broadly, like you're going to buy a, you know, a house down the south coast or north coast or, you know, rural or whatever it is, um, you've got to be extremely careful that, you know, there's not just other investors buying there because if it's everyone's holiday homes in the area, there's a crash like, you know, in the market, um, people are losing wealth. What they get rid of is their holiday home. They get rid of, don't get rid of their home that they're um, living in, which is kind of what happened in the GFC in places like Noosa. Um, and it's happening right now in sort of um, places like that where people are, kind of having to force sell um, to sell assets. So you've got to be really careful with any type of holiday area. Um, but there are holiday areas where you've got lots of strong sort of growing communities and owner-occupier demand, et cetera, um, and so they're potentially, you know, better to invest in but they're not without their risks. Well, I think that's the thing here. This is all about risk and it's like a lifestyle uh, investment, if you want to use the word investment or lifestyle property, it's it's something, it's a luxury. It's, it's not really designed to actually provide you with the wealth. It's not a wealth asset, right? Um, if that's even a term, you know, clearly I'm not a financial planner, so I maybe get the terms all wrong, but um, it's not it's a luxury asset. It's not an essential asset. It's not actually really guaranteed to provide you with, um, you know, with a future uh, income stream or with future capital growth that's going to help you in your retirement. So that's, I think, the way it needs to be viewed, that if people are looking at investment, uh, sorry, as a holiday type area, as investment, I think that they're using the word investment to justify making what is a luxury decision or, or is a want rather than a need. Um, 
he, he asks about standard unit and home dwellings. I mean, we talk about that enough, I guess, in um, all yep. the other episodes. But then he has asked about commercial real estate. And I think that's an interesting um, area now too, just post-COVID. Or we're not post-COVID, we're post-COVID restrictions. Um it's going to be interesting to see what happens with commercial property because I think the pattern with which we work and the demand on commercial real estate from organisations small and large is going to change. Yeah, and then you've got lots. Commercial is very broad. You've got retail, um, shop fronts, you've got um, offices, offices, you've got industrial, you've got warehouses, um, et cetera. So commercial is extremely broad. Um, is there people who make a lot of money through commercial real estate? Without a doubt. I actually think some of the best uh, and biggest uh, property investors and the people who've made the most money out of real estate is in commercial. The problem is the entry price to buy the big ticket items where you're going to get a lot of the big growth um, and the real scarce assets is much, much higher than residential. Um, And so... You know, you're just gonna pl- just play in a different field, I think, mm. and you've just got to have a different asset base to play in it. Um, and a lot of commercial developments can be, um, yeah, it, it can provide amazing capital growth and amazing yield. But it might be a shopping center that's you know five to ten million dollars. You know what I mean? Um, so it's not just a little shop front that might have the risks of re- uh, retail just kind of vanishing, which might happen at the moment, or old office blocks kind of no longer. Um, being needed, you know. So you just got to, I guess, just with commercial, it's a very broad area. The biggest problem I find is just it's the, the entry price is too high for most um, investors to get in. Um, and secondly, it's just the stage of life. If, if, you, if most of the desirability of commercial is the the yield, the rent, um, that's what you're buying potentially with lesser amount of capital growth. And um, if you're at that sort of stage and you're hitting retirement, then yeah, maybe commercial is a good option because. Capital growth isn't your number one goal right now. It's that steady income stream in retirement. And so potentially a dry cleaner in a small little high street could be a good investment for you just to give you that regular regular rental income. But maybe not when you're in your 20s and 30s where really what you're trying to do is, is kind of build your asset base. I think it's a really good point about the entry point with commercial that, you know, with residential that, you know, yes, it's still expensive, but yes, you can buy, you know, a smaller apartment in a really good location um, as a way to get into the market. Whereas with commercial, you know, what are you looking at? An individual uh, strata office or or a shop front, you know, that might be less expensive, but you know, you've got to remember also that we didn't talk about the borrowing for commercial. You know, the yeah. banks view them as riskier and so therefore what's the LVR on commercial? Is it 60, 60%? Yeah, you probably get 70 and sometimes you can potentially even get up to 90, like, um, you know, depending on your profession and what you're doing and your history and stuff. So, it's but it's nowhere near as um, easy to get it as kind of residential loans, which they'll kind of lend up to 95% in some cases. So, yeah, um, and, you know, LMI is all there, et cetera, and, there's a whole, uh, you know, lending system built on high LVRs, um, whereas commercial yet yeah, the banks are always looking to to protect themselves because they know the potential commercial values are, um, are more volatile mm. um, and, you know, they, they go in the, the market cycles a lot more. You know, when we're growing, we want more and more commercial space. Businesses are growing. When things get tough, we, you know, we cut back. Um, and so that's uh, kind of the, the issues that commercial real estate have. I think that's the thing too about residential. That one of the things that makes it very different asset class to every single thing else is that people live in it, and people have yeah. to live in something. And so people don't have to have a shop 
they don't have to have an office. They can work from home. They can have an online shop these days. So I guess that, you know, for small businesses even, uh, we'll try to reinvent and, and not um, and there's also fashions, you know, in terms of the industrial parks and things that, that there's, when I say fashion, there's, there's, um, what's the word? There's periods of time where type of a property would work very well with what's happening commercially, just generally in, in the business world. And then, then that will change, you know, like drain drone deliveries for arguments, like will change the way warehousing is done. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's all this sort of technological and um, change that comes along uh, and economic change that will fundamentally shift and change the way in which commercial property is needed. And so that's sort of more of a macro level, but, it, it, you know, that, that filters down obviously to the individual investor. Yeah, it's a bit like um, when I was, you know, it's, uh, I've been accused of potentially saying too many anecdotes, but I find that they actually help people understand. And um, back in, uh, it was about 2014, Oxford Street, in Sydney, in Paddington, if you, if you know it, was a you know a grade A sort of commercial street. All the shops were full with fashion and retail. Um, and in the last the few years before that, it's like 2012, 13, etc. The shops started shutting down. And I remember I used to live not on, along that road. And I used to run along it, and you know there was 30, 40 you know places for rent. And there's kind of this cancer that kind of spreads. And you know what was a amazing sort of shopping strip, sort of over time, sort of lost its, um, you know, whole appeal. And it went from a grade A location to own a retail shop front to maybe a C or a D because, you you know, there was so many options for people looking to kind of rent on Oxford Street. And there's been similar stories in Melbourne, in sort of um, Richmond and, and certain areas as well. So, you know, you just got to be careful with commercial because you're right, the society does shift and what we need today from a commercial point of view can be completely different um, in five years. Um but with home ownership and, you know, residential property, you know, we still need the same amount of homes in five years' time um, and potentially more because the population grows. And so that's the the more known thing, whereas commercial, you just don't know whether, you know, is that commercial space really going to be needed in the future? On to the second question. Over to you, Chris. So the second question here is from Veronica. Thank you for this. Um, it's all around land tax. So the first one part of it is, you know, if you live in the property, are you liable to pay land tax? And if so, at what value? Um, is anyone really exempt from paying land tax? If so, who? Um, and how do you structure your property ownership to avoid paying land tax? <laughs> so there's lots of levels to this question, but it's all around kind of land tax and the rules around it. Yeah, my favourite um, favorite topic. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you live in the property, you don't have to pay land tax, correct? Yep. Okay, so that's good. We don't have to worry about that one. Second part of the question is, is anyone exempt from paying land tax? Are you aware of anyone being exempt from paying land tax? Not really, but there are like certain industries like farming, um, you know, if it's producing, um, you potentially can exempt land tax. Boarding houses, um, I think some low-cost accommodation, uh, caravan parks and things like that, Uh, retirement villages, you know, uh, childcare centers, these sort of places um, can, but for most people, residential sort of housing investors, no, you got you got to pay tax land tax. So you don't get an exemption unless it's your home. So I'd like to direct anyone who's interested in this actually back to episode 116, where we really covered property and taxes 101 with Alison Lacey, yeah. um, who's an accountant. 
uh, who specialises in this area. But um, so, but very briefly, and I'm recalling some of the things that she said because the end of this question is how do people need to restructure their property ownership to avoid paying land tax? And one thing she did mention was that so if you got your principal place of residence, then you buy a, a, an investment property. Then but there's a threshold, right? And so, and it's the unimproved land value. So if that second property the unimproved land value of that property exceeds the threshold, then you're going to have to pay land tax on whatever amount of money is over that threshold, right? Um, and it, and then if you have another property and so on and so on. And she did say one, one strategy was to actually make sure that you buy in different states because this is a state government tax, not a federal tax. Yeah, I mean, 100%. So it comes down to who's owning the property, so the, uh, you know, the taxpayer, I guess. Um, and then what state? Because it's a state-based tax. So yeah, I mean, a simple way is to go and buy five different properties in five different states. Um, and if the, all those properties, the land value is underneath the land tax threshold, um, which might be say five hundred thousand. Let's just call it in each state. Um, then you wouldn't pay any land tax, and you could potentially have two and a half million dollars of land and not be paying any land tax. There's a weakness with that, decision? though. Yeah, that? <laughs> is that the best decision? Maybe not. No. Do you really want to be going to buy a property in Northern Territory or South Australia or WA? Um, and is there an opportunity cost of buying that um, so you can avoid paying land tax? Um, but at some point in time, that that might be the best decision. You might want to buy some in New South Wales, some in Queensland, some in Victoria, um, because you're building up. And the land tax threshold gets, the percentage gets bigger the more land you've got. So there's like usually a second rate of how much they charge you. So, you, you know, the more land you've got, the more tax you pay. So potentially it's a good idea to start to split your wealth if you get this problem across different states. So it's a good problem to have in my view. There is um, the other side of it as well is that if you buy a house, that unimproved land value of that house is going to be proportionally more than if you bought an apartment for the same value. So say for argument's sake, yeah, you spent $1.2 million on a house in Sydney, um, you're not probably not going to be in the inner ring if you buy that house. So, or if you yep. are, you might be buying a highly compromised house. So you might be suffering on, on capital growth because of the choice of asset, because of the budget. But if you went with, out with 1.2, you could buy a really good apartment, a really good location with scarcity, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Um, probably will go up in value more than a compromised house, but the yep. land portion of that apartment is a lot smaller. And so you might still be under the threshold and not pay any land tax. So on that one investment. So there's there's lots of different ways at sort of cutting and dicing this. But I think I think if you're going to make sacrifices to the calibre of the asset in order to stay under the land tax threshold, then you could be actually shooting yourself in the foot because you might not be buying as good a quality investment. 100%. So land tax is tax deductible as well. So, you know, if it's, you know, a thousand dollars, um, you know, it's really only $600 out of your pocket, right? So, um, or $500 depending on your tax rate. So it's not the end of the world if you have to pay a bit of land tax because you get 40 or 50% of it back. Um, and then you've got to think, well, what actually, what am I actually getting for that is land and land's generally what goes up in value anyway. So you actually, it's a good thing to be buying. Now, I 100% agree with you. As long as you have you a good apartment. asset. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. buying high quality land that actually grows. But um, you're right with apartments, but if you kind of took that strategy and put that into Melbourne or into Brisbane, um, you know, potentially the apartments, um, those apartments in those suburbs haven't grown anywhere near as strongly as, say, in Sydney. So um, I agree that the, the apartment strategy is a really good one in New South Wales where you can buy a yeah. very scarce apartment 
get a much smaller land content versus, say, a house and potentially avoid paying more land tax. Um, You know, there's some things you can do with buying companies. You can buy in certain trusts in certain states as well. You still have to pay land tax though, don't you? In, in uh, the, yeah, the, but there's like, for example, in New South Wales, I don't think you can use fixed trusts and and Victoria, etc. But um, yeah, but you've got different thresholds because it's in a different name. Um, you can potentially open up another threshold. But there's problem. There's problems buying companies. You know, you don't get the capital gains tax exemption, um, etc. So, and you might have problems with borrowing and um, actually getting banks to lend in the company and things like that. So yeah. Yeah, there's all these sort of other ways you can get tricky. The reality is, is the government going to let you just avoid land tax easily? No. Um, and is it the end of the world if you have to pay a bit more land tax if you get a quality investment? I don't think so. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of the, the crux of it. More on tax. We've got uh, our third question. Aussie has asked, how does capital gains tax work and what is the 12-month rule? Are there any exemptions from capital gains tax? So it's the same as land tax. I mean, this is one of the things that pushes up house prices really um, is that the gains on home ownership are tax-free. You know, if you buy a house for a million dollars and you sell it for $2 million, you know, just let's say you make a million dollars there, you don't pay a single dollar in tax. And what generally most people do is take that gain and then go and borrow more money and then go and buy another property. Um, And so one of the things that, you know, is pushed up our house prices the most is we don't pay any capital gains tax on home ownership. Um, The second part to that question is how does capital gains tax work? Well, you know, when you earn an income, you pay tax, um, you know, and you pay that at your marginal rate, whether that's 35, 40 or 50%, just rounding up. Um, It's the same thing with capital gains tax. You've made a gain, the government want to tax you on that. Now, what they'll do is they'll allow you to potentially minus off the cost of making that gain. So, you know, if it's a property, they'll allow you to minus off the legals and the, um, you know, the real estate agent, you know, 2% to sell it, et cetera. But they'll also minus off the cost to buy the asset. So stamp duty and maybe some borrowing costs, et cetera. So um, this is kind of, you know, whatever your net gain is, let's just say it was, you know, $900,000. The 12-month rule basically means if you've owned that property or that asset for more than 12 months, they will halve that gain. So in, in the tax office view, you know, yes, you might have made $900,000 in your pocket. That's your net gain. But the ta- uh, ATO will allow you to halve that. So they say, well, you're only actually made four fifty, And then that four fifty is added on top of your income. So in that tax year. So most times you, that would push you into the top tax rate at 50% or 49. And then you'd lose, you know, 50% of that gain roughly. So... In this situation, you really, I think the best way to think about capital gains tax is um, if you sell it, you pay it. So a lot of the best strategy with capital gains tax is buy good assets and hold on to them because you don't pay tax to sell. But even if you do sell, you're really only going to lose about 20 to 25% of that gain in tax because it's half of the capital gain times your marginal rate. And this is one of the things that was under review, well, under the firing, in the firing line with the Labor uh, yeah. election policy back in 2019, which obviously failed, but it was branded the negative gearing tax, but in reality, or the, the tax reform, but in reality they had the tax concession or the capital gains tax concession in their sites because, you know, 50%, you know, and actually I have to tend to agree it is a bit generous. So um, <laughs> it's one of these days it might end, you know, but for the moment it's a really good opportunity for investors. 
It is because if, for example, let's say you earn, you know, over 100 and, you know, let's say 200 grand, you pay 50% tax. So, you know, every single dollar that you earn, you lose 50% of it, you know, so it's, it's kind of, um, it's tough going, but with capital gains tax, the max you're going to lose is like 25%, right? So it's a big benefit to invest in assets that grow in value because you pay a lot less tax that way. Okay, so we've got our fourth question. Chris, you want to give it to us? So this one is from Marie. I did pick up from you in the past episode that you thought family home being rented out would produce a lower yield. We've had our place, a four-bed, three-bath, renovated with pool on an acreage in Oxenford in the Gold Coast after rent for three months, not much interest, have dropped price from $8.25 to $7.90, why do you think that yields are lower from family home rentals? Well, there's a one here, the fact that it's on acreage would make it even harder because yeah. you've got a very, very limited pool of potential um, tenants who would want to take on the responsibility of looking after um, more grounds, I would say. That, that, that could be one thing that's particularly an issue with this particular property. But the, generally speaking, there are there are fewer potential tenants for larger homes. You know, you've got to think that a lot of families do want to own. So I, I don't know what the, the percentages are, but like there's probably more percentage of families would own than rent as opposed to, say, apartments where you've got, you know, younger people and, and you know, young couples and sharers or, you know, living in share houses for argument's sake. So I guess the lack of the demand will keep a lid on the rents, but also a lot of tenants, you know, they really don't want to be, you know, having a pool and having all those gardens and all the rest of it, that that is a lot of work for tenants because they are responsible. So they've got to spend more money maintaining it. So that's one of the reasons that the, would keep a lid on the rent too, I would think. So it really just comes down to demand. I think there's a few parts to it. I think um, when, you, when you talk about homes versus, say, apartments, um, it's generally because the the yield, low yields caused by high prices. So um, it's because the price of the asset has kind of gone up over time and that rent as a percentage of the asset values now very small. Um, and you're right. I think a lot of people, there's a, there's a price floor and a price ceiling on rents, you know, like if you think about a young couple, um, you know, they might be comfortable to spend, you know, six to $700 a week in rent, but they don't want to go spend 1100 because, you know, there's enough choice at say seven to 800 a week. Um, and so they don't just go and there's not just this kind of inf- infinite sort of growth in sort of rents. Um, and so I think what you'll find is, is that uh, most people who are renting are trying to save potentially to buy houses. And so, you know, they, they that I think does limit how much people will go and spend on renting a three, $4 million house because there'll be another other options for them and they'll just won't justify spending so much money on rent um, unless they have to. And so that's, I think, another reason why houses don't get the rent, even if the house value is worth a lot of money, um, because the people renting it go, you know what? Do we really need to go and spend two and a half thousand dollars for this um, when we can rent a really nice apartment for, you know, twelve hundred dollars or something? So, I think that's a, another part to it, um, on top of the upkeep, etc. So we've got our fifth question. Here's a really good one from Ravi, and I'm sure you can tackle this one, Chris. I was wondering if someone on your show going forward can answer a question. It relates to offset loans. If there is a bank failure or bail-in, which I understand would precede the former, who owns the property and money? 
as in can they confiscate your property as their own equity as part of the bail-in? This is crazy stuff I know, but there are respected people who do not rule out such things occurring post-debt problems, as he's put in brackets, Jim Richards and Robert Kiyosaki. My bank guys can't or don't answer it because it's never occurred. Do you have an answer so, for that, please? Uh, offset accounts are a savings account, so um, there's government guarantees there to protect you. I think it's up to about $250. Um, the reality is in a bank failure, um, you know, there's usually assets that the bank gets sold on and assets get sold on to different, um, you know, it's liquidated. It's like a, any other business going bankrupt. They'll start to sell the assets, uh, you know, the loans of, um, so, you know, there'll be an asset there. Your mortgage is an asset. So that will get sold to another bank. Your cash in the offset account um, should be yours. Um, you should, if you can't access it, there'll be government guarantees up to say 250. So you've got to be a little bit careful with this. Let's say you've got a um, $2 million house and, you know, a million dollar mortgage and a million dollars in the offset or something. Um, and the bank that you've got your money in the offset goes under, like this would be a pretty bad situation, but you potentially could lose a lot of that money. Um, and your mortgage would get on sold to another bank. So, um, that's kind of roughly what would happen. And that's what happened in the, the UK when through the GFC, you know, banks got sold off. Um, you know, the, the loan book got sold off to one bank and the asset book, which is say this, the, the savings, which is the liabilities of the bank, got sold off to another bank. So banks can get split up and sold off. So even if you have an offset account, you, you could foresee that potentially, I mean, actually it's funny because we do talk about um, offset accounts being a really good thing to have, but there's obviously this element of risk associated with that. As you say, the offset balance is considered savings, um, which part yep. of which are, gov- are covered by bank gu- uh, government guarantee, but that potentially could be separated. That's an interesting, that's quite scary, isn't it? If, if you are of the camp and you think that a bank, um, an Australian bank's going to go under um, and you think that you're, uh, you would potentially want to use one of the bigger banks. So, you know, an ANZ going under is, or, you know, one of the other big four is a catastrophe. Potentially if they're going to let a smaller bank go under, it's not. You know, they can't let a bank with, say, millions and millions of Australians kind of go under. Um, you know, too big to fail. And unfortunately, that is the case. Um, so, yeah, if you really are worried about these issues, potentially have your money at a big bank. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and potentially only limit it at 250 in your offset and then put 250 at a different bank and 250 at a different bank. So if, you, um, if you're in a, um, a smaller bank, you know, one of those third-tier lenders, for instance, and they, and they do offer an offset account, are they, are your lend, is your borrowing, sorry, is your savings, are your savings protected by the same government guarantee in that type of institution? Yeah, any ADR is kind of protected by 250, um, I believe. So, um, yeah, deposit, uh, Australian deposit institution or whatever it is. So, um, yeah, it's you're covered. But, you know, you've got to kind of understand that, uh, these sort of situations happening, um, it's pretty, even in the in the UK, when this situation kicked off in the GFC, um, they didn't really let any banks kind of go under. All the other banks just, no one really lost money. All the banks just got sold off to other banks. Um, because it's, it's yeah, you know, a total run on the bank would cause um, sort of riots on the street. If you think about you losing you know, all your wealth overnight, um, you're not going to be happy, right? So the bank does everything they can to to kind of protect the asset holders. Right. Uh, yes. And obviously why the government is protecting asset holders as well because the government yeah. doesn't want to run on the banks. And if this is potentially going to happen, they might even increase 
you know, the 250 to a million dollars. And they'll do all these things to bring confidence to the banking sector. Um, and so, you know, it's highly unlikely these sort of things would happen. Um, but if you want to kind of, you can kind of sit in this sort of doomsday camp and worry about all these risks. Um, but is it a 0.001% chance? Yes, potentially. Um, you know, is it something to be seriously concerned about on a daily basis? Probably not. Well, no, it's interesting though. I like to, um, I thought it was a good question. Uh, then we've got another one for you, Chris. This one's from Daniel. At the moment, there is a reasonable difference between variable and fixed rate mortgage for principal place of residence. I'm tempted to shift. However, I'm concerned that no, I've said account for fixed. Is there any way around this? It's a common mistake I sometimes see when clients come to me, um, maybe seeing another broker or going direct to the bank and they didn't really understand how loan structuring works. Um, and, uh, some people believe you've got to either fix 100% or you've got to have 100% variable. You can't have half fixed, half variable or 80% fixed, 20% variable. So, um, you know, and so what they'll do is they'll go into a bank and then they'll say, oh, yeah, I want to fix my loan. I'll fix it all. It's the, you know, one of the common mistakes I see with mortgages that you should not do that. The reason why is you don't need to. You could potentially keep, you know, 10% of your loan um, in variable and then have your offset account linked to that 10%. You're right, you can't have offset accounts generally linked to fixed loans. You potentially can pay fixed loans off faster, but, you know, with, you know, maybe 10, 20, 30, 40,000 or something. But you generally speaking, the best way to structure it is have a, a decent portion variable and have your offset account linked to that portion and never fix your whole loan um, entirely. You, your second, the, the first point there around tempted to fix because of low rates, 100% right now. I mean, you've got... Um, you know, two years, three-year fixed rates around 22 2.3%. Um, and good variable rates right now around 27 um, And most people are paying more than that. Most people are paying, you know, closer to 3% on their variable rate. Um, so, you know, if you potentially could fix for 50, 60 basis points under what your variable rate is today, um, it's a pretty good bet um, because the RBA is at 0.25 uh, basis points they can only go potentially a little bit. They're only, firstly, they're starting to talk about maybe going to zero, which wasn't possible apparently a few weeks ago. Uh, and so, yeah, I think it's a good bet right now to fix just because of where the RBA rate is and just how far under the variable rate it is from day one. It's interesting though because like the banks have got access to, you know, much smarter people than you or I um, in terms of they're predicting which way interest rates are going to go, aren't they? So then if they offer a fixed rate that's lower than variable, that's because they really think that rates are going to go down. Generally um, true, just not at the moment. Unfortunately, um, at the moment they've got access to an RBA funding line that the banks, the RBA are using to allow the banks to lend at cheap rates and the RBA are giving you that money for three years at really cheap rates. So the banks have got access to this funding line um, just for the next three years guaranteed at low rates. And so hence why, uh, and it was also part of uh, the response with this sort of corona was to give them this funding line um, and the bank said, okay, well, we're going to use this funding line and we'll offer our clients really cheap fixed rates, but we're not cutting our variable rate because we know that this funding line is not going to last forever. So in this situation is a bit of a unique circumstance, which is causing the fixed rates to be very low. But generally speaking, what you were saying is true. The banks go to the wholesale market, um, other banks, institutions, super funds, bonds, et cetera. Uh, and they raise that capital and then they lend it out. And so if they can raise that capital 
out cheaply longer term um, or more expensive longer term, that will drive their fixed rates, not the RBA funding line, which is what's happening at the moment. Because it's sort of interesting. I go back to when I got my first mortgage. Um, oh, God, it's about 25 years ago now. And, you know, and I've often mentioned this, that, you know, I, the memory of my friends being stuck with sort of 17, 18% interest rates in the last recession, um, you know, was always large in my mind. And so I was really proud of myself. I fixed half of my first mortgage at 9.85%. Um, and back then, fixed rates were higher than variable. Um, and because you were paying, you know, you were offsetting that risk because everyone remembered that, oh, 17%, that's huge. I'd rather pay and have, there was, I think a couple of percentage points difference. By the time my fixed rate period expired, the variable portion of my loan was down in the sixes somewhere. So I've been paying this higher interest rate, you know, by 3% higher for a quite a period of time on a portion of the loan. But, you know, of recent years, so the last decade, it's switched where the fixed rates have been less than variable. Um, but I guess also even back when 25 years ago, I don't think there was such a thing as an offset account then. So there's obviously benefits to having a variable um, now that I think potentially I might be wrong, but I certainly wasn't aware of offset accounts back then. Um so that, but I find that interesting that it's cheaper to fix and has been for a long time, given that it used to be that people would pay for the privilege of, of fixing for the certainty. Yeah. I mean, we had, um, you know, I guess higher rates than the world. And so uh, a lot of the funding around the world was potentially cheaper, longer term. So the banks were foreseeing rates to go down and, um, but fixing, fixing can flip pretty fast. Wholesale funding, international markets can get more expensive. And um, when, for example, Donald Trump got in, um, fixed rates jumped 1% um, in the space of just a few months. They went from uh, five-year fixed rates, good about 3.8% to 4.8%, um, not long after Donald Trump got in because he was going to go spend all this money and potentially create inflation and long-term rates went up, et cetera. So, you know, they, they do move around and so – but you're right, like they have been kind of on this downward trend. The question is right now, can their rates go lower? You know, when the RBA is at 25 basis points, all the banks around the world are already zero. Um, you know, are we going to see variable rates at low twos? It's, it's hard to know. But, um, you know, that's kind of what you could already fix in now for, you know, two or three years at, you know, 2.1, 2.2. So summing this up, the way around not having an offset account for fixed rates is to split your loan in two, keep part of it variable that you can have an offset attached to and then the rest of it fixed. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing them a lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Chris, have you got a property dumbo for us this week? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. I do. I've got uh, plenty um, problems we do see um, or mistakes or things that people could do better. And I think um, this one I think is uh, something that we just, it's kind of finance 101 and, you know, you really, uh, unfortunately these areas take years to fix and this is all about taking care of your credit rating and making sure that you're just doing the basics. Um, I've got a client, you know, just recently, you know, big transaction looking to borrow a lot of money. They earn a lot of money um, and just haven't been paying their credit card um, and a missed payments and just really kind of sloppy sort of 
day-to-day management of their loans. Um, the reality is they've got more money coming in than, you know, than they uh, and money going out and they're just not doing the basics. And the reality is most banks won't lend to them. Um, and in this situation, it takes two years to clean up your credit um, in this scenario. It can be a lot worse than that, depending on if it's a default and all this sort of thing. But just keep your, keep your credit rating and take care of it because you just don't know um, when you might want to, you know, borrow money, et cetera. Um, and, it, and then more and more credit rating is going to matter because of open banking um, and you can, it's a much easier for your other banks to see what your other credit limits are and your behaviour is at other banks. Um, and so going forward, I think your credit rating might become a bit like the US system where um, it's really based on your point system and um, that may even determine your rate. So I'd really be taking care of your credit rating right now and just making sure that you really understand how it works and just doing the basics like paying your minimum repayments. Yeah, that's uh, 101. It's funny, isn't it? Yeah, some people are very disciplined around this stuff and others aren't so disciplined, but it's going to cost, right? Most people just think like missing your credit card is just, oh, it's 10 bucks. And if you've got, you know, you're earning a lot of money, you know, 10 bucks isn't a lot of money, right? And so you don't, oh, pay a bit of interest, it doesn't really matter, right? But it's, that's not the, the issue here is if it's, it's actually just making sure that you're paying your obligations of a loan. It doesn't matter that loan's a $1,000 limit or a $100,000 limit or, you know, it's a car for $10,000 or 100000 It's just doing what you said you're going to do with taking out that loan. Um, and if you're going to go ask for a, a multi-million dollar mortgage, which was in this situation, um, you, the bank won't look past that small credit card just missing the repayments. Right. Um, so you just got to be really careful. I do think we're going to move to a more of a points-based system and um, who knows, potentially in the future you'll basically be able to borrow based on your LVR but also your credit rating. You know, better credit rating might get you a better rate. Wow. And so there is also, I mean, you get a, um, a what is that, the credit rating, right? So what does that mean? What is a credit? I mean, I got one, I got it recently. Mine was pretty good but then what is pretty good? Like... But, you know, I think there's – in Australia, it's really just a negative system, I, I think, at the moment. So it's like as long as you're doing um, – you know, and I think applications for credit, like if you go and try to – I've seen clients try to um, play the point system with credit cards and things like that. Uh, it just doesn't look great, you know, when you've got Afterpay and, you know, you've applied for six different credit cards in the last year and things like that. A lot of the time it's usually fine, but sometimes if it's a – a loan that might be in mortgage insurance territory and it's high risk, then the bank might say, oh, you're just looking a bit more of a high risk customer for us. Your kind of appetite for debt um, and credit um, isn't really the type of client that we want. So um, yeah, at the moment, it's really just a negative based system. So if you do something wrong, that it'll really affect your credit rating. Whereas like, for example, in the US, like actually having credit and paying off credit gets you points. So taking out credit, paying it off is actually good for your credit rating. It's not really like that here. So, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like sometimes you have no credit um, and you haven't missed any repayments, you'll have a good credit rating here, um, even though you haven't had any debt. So um, that's kind of a bit of a miss. Uh, and, but I think it's moving in that direction. So, uh, yeah, you just got to be really careful with your credit rating because, uh, you know, with okay. with the open banking coming forward, banks will know absolutely everything about your credit and your account behaviour because it has to get shared between all the banks. We want to make you a better elephant rider and this week's elephant rider training is... 
Well, we're back in the territory of seeing a lot of negative headlines around property prices and it always irritates me, mainly because I guess when you see our, our annual full or forecaster report, which you can of course download from the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, and you can go back and listen to our most recent episode, 114, which is the 2020 full or forecaster report episode. But the thing is, so we, you know, we know that forecasters get it wrong more than they get it right. But they're back out again. Combank's been, you know, quoted as saying that uh, property market's going to fall by a third. You know, NAB's behind them saying similar things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And here we go again. Um, it doesn't seem to matter that none of them got it right in the last downturn. It doesn't seem to matter that um, forecasters get it wrong more than they get it right. But individuals have been reading it and being, um, I guess, using this sort of headline data to make their decisions. And so I guess what I want to talk about is that why are these um, forecasts created in the first place and why are we as individuals using that information that's been created for a very different purpose? It hasn't actually, actually, none of it's actually been created to allow individual property owners or property buyers to make decisions on their situation. It's been created for a a macro, you know, macro decisions for a business case. There's lots of reasons why these economists come out with these, this data and this modelling and these predictions. And yet it's because it's on the headline, because the worst case scenario is, is usually what the headline is made out of as well. Individual owners will look to that and think they're going to make their decisions on their circumstances based on that. So I just really want to talk about that in this boot camp to say, well, look, let's take a step back and realize that this information doesn't necessarily apply to you. Yeah, I mean, it happened to me last week. I mean, the CBA report came out on Monday, I think it was, and um, you know, all the papers picked up thirty percent, um, and you know, CBA thinking house prices are going to fall by thirty percent. I mean, that was one of their scenarios. It was actually the more negative scenario, but that was what the headline, that's what people picked up. And I had a client, you know, ring me up and he was still in his cooling off period after purchasing and we had a really good chat around that and what does that actually mean to them and the type of property that they're buying in that area um, and how does that affect their situation and potentially it was a completely different story. So um, you're right. I think you've got to be very careful reading the headlines because, um, yeah, they're always there to sell the news. Well, the, the headline is there to sell the news and, and the very fact that they tend to latch on to the worst case scenario because when we interviewed Shane Oliver, uh, you know, the, the head economist at uh, AMP Capital back in episode 117, and that's an excellent yeah. episode to go back to if anyone's interested in this sort of thing because he talks about really the value of the forecasting. He also talks about his his own accuracy or lack thereof and he also talks about the, the set of data or information that is used for the for putting together the case at the time it comes up with these predictions uh, and why it's flawed in terms of making your day-to-day decisions based on because of, of really the purpose of that um, that modelling is not around, as I said, individual decisions. So that's a great episode, back to 117. And, you know, so you got the headlines wanting to, to basically sell advertising and let's just, you know, clickbait and all the rest of it. Then you've got the actual individual um bank that's coming up with those scenarios because they've got to have their own make their own business decisions based on this sort of stuff 
you know, um, they've got a lot of money at stake. They've got to make decisions about who they're going to lend money to, what sort of properties they're going to lend money on, um, who's a bigger risk, you know, how they're going to protect the bank, uh, the bank's business. I mean, there's all of that stuff that goes on in terms of why they're actually doing this modelling. Um, and then the individuals need to understand that not, you know, when they come out with a uh, data point or with a prediction that says, okay, worst case scenario, property in Australia could fall 30%. That doesn't mean that every single house, every single apartment is going to fall in value by 30%. That an understanding on the micro or the granular level is so important to really fundamentally get whether you're buying a good asset, whether you're holding a good asset, not knee-jerking out of it or not knee-jerking and not buying something when it's actually the right property for you. So it's just something that I really wanted to, to bring up that these predictions are not made to help individuals make decisions yeah i mean i you can kind of watch the read the media you've always got to kind of kind of laugh at kind of somehow the story behind it and the facts they're using uh i mean there was two just last week that uh on saturday there was an article about all the housing prices falls and the uh, journalist basically used an example of a mining town uh and then kind of then made that sort of analogy that the other markets are going to fall like these mining towns and it's completely different. Um, and another article was a prominent buyer's agent that's um, out there that's, you know, quite famous. Um, he's getting out of his property because um, it's a better time to sell. Um, and so he was kind of, and then they were using that, his reason, a buyer's agent selling a property that's, uh, and he actually said that it's a better time to sell than in 12 months' time. The reason why, if you actually look at the property that he was selling, it was on a busy road next to a train line. It wasn't the high, wasn't actually a great asset. He was just selling one of his um, poor assets that he knows won't <laughs> won't go well in a downturn. And um, I don't know who you're talking about. I honestly don't. But I mean, why did he buy one of them in the first place? <laughs> exactly. I wouldn't want. If I was a buyer, I wouldn't want no people owning. I know I that know. I own that. I wouldn't um, be out there spruiking that I'd ever bought one of them. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, in this scenario, you'd be opening the door on Monday and telling people it's a good time to buy. He's a buyer's agent. So, um, you know, I do find it uh, funny how the, the media is always just looking to latch onto stories and, uh, yeah, you just got to be uh, take it with a grain of salt. Actually, that is interesting you just say that about he's a buyer's agent. I've actually come across, I've had a bit of inquiry lately from, you know, potential clients and, and it is quite surprising the amount that has said, oh, my God, it's so refreshing to hear you talk. Um, you know, about the pros and cons and what may or may not happen and not with this sort of great sense of certainty because so many buyers agents are basically just pushing this line, you've got to buy now, great opportunities, great opportunities. And it's not really true. You know, it's there's not a lot of stock around and not many people are actually under pressure. So therefore, there's not a lot of great opportunities if you're looking for a bargain. And look, we can have a whole episode on, on the folly of doing that anyway. But um you know, and then I talk to selling agents, you got selling agents telling vendors one thing and they're telling buyers a completely different story. And it's really, really awful. And I have to say that it's, it's a period of time that is, is not making me feel very proud to be a real estate agent. Yeah. I mean, that's the, always the challenge of a real estate agent, lots of um, kind of middle sort of jobs, right? You've got the buyer and the seller and, you know, both motivated potentially by different things. Um, if the buyer thought prices were going to fall, then they'd wait, you know, but then the, a lot of what's motivating the seller sometimes is they're worried about prices are going to exactly. fall. And so it's um, that's sometimes the, unfortunately, the pitch, the, the best real estate agents, the most honest ones don't get that the seller to sell because they say to them, look, we don't know what's going to happen. You know, mm. it's unsure whether the price is going to be cheaper in 12 months. Um, I think the best real estate agents who do that long-term survive though because they build a reputation 
on good advice. Um, I, 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 I'm the same as you, actually. I think a lot of the stuff I'm reading out there, I think a lot of people are too early to call that um, we're out of the woods. Um, you just got to buy. Market's going to go up. Um, they're looking at potentially one or two data points like real estate search activity well, or low stock or um, – and they're, they're kind of pulling this well, one data. Rates. Yeah, clearance rate. Yeah, exactly. And then they're saying, oh, market's going to go back up. There's so much more at play here as a bigger sort of global story um, that would have impact us here. And, you know, a lot of these things haven't played through yet. You know, we haven't seen the unemployment, the job keeper go. We haven't seen what happens in the US and the UK economies and Europe, uh, what happens in China. With You know, a lot of these things impact us as a country and our economy. Um, we haven't seen how bank lending's going to play out, um, et cetera. So there's lots of story here. So, um, but I feel like a lot of people are either playing on the, uh, using one piece of data, uh, like at the moment, like discounting has gone up in mm. Sydney property. So, you know, if you pull that one piece of data, you'd say the market's going to fall because, you know, price discounting is increased on Sydney properties. Well, oh, I read read about that. That was CoreLogic data that came out. And yeah. what really irritates me is that you can't look at that in isolation because the reality, they're talking about discounting in April, right? And the yeah. reason the properties discounted in April was because we couldn't hold auctions and properties that had been pitched too high because, you know, nobody knew where to, to, to get these properties right in terms of pricing. And, of course, they're going to get discounting because they're going to get it wrong. And yeah. and that it's 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 a very unique market circumstances, and so that's going to result in market discounting because, of course, all these properties are coming to an auction campaign. All the owners had this elevated ex, uh, ex, expectations on price because of the way the market had been as early as beginning of March, and they're going to get caught out. So so I think that to just say, oh my God, prices are falling, or because of discounting, is yes, I agree. It's a single data point without putting it in context is really really dangerous. And just to play that out, I went to an auction on Saturday Now, for a client. We didn't buy it. Um, and this is interesting because this property sold for, I think it was 3.82 million, right? Now the agent had brought it to market originally and she was talking to buyers and saying, look, I really think it sits somewhere between 3.7 and 3.8. Now nobody wanted to hear a bar of that, including my clients. They didn't want to hear a bar of that. No, 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 price going to fall, price going to fall. Now, we go through the whole exercise and then, of course, in that whole process, auctions were allowed to be held again, so they set an auction date. But in that process, that actually reduced the uh, the, the guide to 3.3 three to 3.4. Now, in consultation with the owner um, and the owner's uh, reserve ended up being 3.5 at auction and it ended up, you know, there's seven registered bidders and it ended up getting competition that sold at 3.82. It was a very good asset. It was a very good property. And that's the conversation I have with our clients is that this, it, it's hard to know exactly what will happen because here we are in new uncharted territories. This could happen. There's a ver- various scenarios that could happen at the auction. But one thing we need to remember is the calibre of the asset, the calibre of the property. It's a scarce property. And that's why people lined up for it you know, registered to bid and bid for it and actually ended up selling slightly above the range the agent was originally pitching it at. Now, she had to underquote that and and I think she did her job very well, actually. I think she she had that conversation with her agent, sorry, her vendor, the vendor's reserve came down. She was entertaining. She was introducing that 3.5 figure to all the buyers. She did her job very, very well, that agent. Um but it just shows that that was a pre-COVID expectation, if you like. It required that that re- reduced 
quoting to get it there, but it got it got the end result. Not one buyer wanted a bar of that agent telling them where they thought where she thought the property sat price wise. So, but it's also an A grade asset that did very very well in in uncertain conditions, and that's the sort of property that will continue to do well. One hundred percent. And in these sort of downturns, yes, you know, one of the things that's supporting the market is you know low supply or low listings, um, and you know, and that's even worse for you know, quality assets. There's actually less quality assets on the market now um, mm, and yes. because a lot of them hold on through these periods. So you see less quality properties on the market, even you know, compounding by low listings anyway. Uh, you could see that in 2018. Like there was properties that clients were interested in when the market was, you know, prices were still falling, market was down 10 to 15% and there were still properties that would come up, you know. I remember one in... Uh, client was looking in the inner west. It was a cracking frontage, great street, uh, and it went for a great price. Um, and there was huge competition um, in because there was just nothing of that quality had come on for ages. And when it finally did, there was a you know whole truckload of buyers willing to um, try their luck and end up going for a great price, which I think is exactly what's happened in this situation, right? So um, you're right. I think uh, the quality assets are hard to buy. Um, in good times and even harder to buy in down times because there's just very few of them on the market. And that's the moral of the story. So we thank you for coming and joining us for this Q&A episode. As we said earlier, please send us your questions and we'll put together another episode in the future where we answer your questions. Uh, we love your feedback. We do actually... Uh, read and listen to every review that is sent to us and we do take it on board very seriously. So we'd love to hear from you in terms of who would you like to hear from, who would you like us to interview and what topics are you interested in us covering? Join us next week when we interview Mike Mortlock. Mike Mortlock is a self-confessed data nerd. But what he is bringing to us is some really great insights into the actual behaviour of property investors in Australia and blows some of the myths. So we're thinking about how many people really are investing in brand new versus established. Which state are property investors spending the most amount of money on renovations? And just how many people are accidental investors? So it's an interesting episode to tune into just to give you some insights into what's really going on out there in the minds and behaviours of individual property investors. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.